Father, you are the ruler of us all, but you are the father of the church, O Lord. And we praise you for this distinction. And we pray that our worship services this morning, Father, will glorify you. And we pray it through Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to read this morning the first 26 verses. I would like to read more than that. I think that would be a, a lot to try to take on in, in one session, so I'm, I'm going to plan a second or even a third session for this section of John's Gospel in the series of Gospel Tales, and this is one of the wonderful tales of conversion, one of the wonderful tales of proclamation and of evangelism spreading out throughout an entire country, really, a, a province, but a country in its own right, Samaria. And it happens by the Lord speaking at a well stop along the journey to one particular person, the famous woman at the well. And so we read, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, will he tell us all things? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Our Father, in Jesus' name, open the scriptures to us this morning and unfold the deep meaning of the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The encounters, fairly self-explanatory, but there's a number of things that we might want to know as to why um, it was um, such a momentous event that Jesus chose this route of evangelism and this person with whom to declare himself and declare the gospel. Verse 9 begins, The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, woman rather, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now the Apostle John's the only evangelist that recorded this particular tale, and we're given to believe that at this point in their journey, the Messiah was alone. We read his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus, it seems, engineered this meeting with he and the woman alone. Now, as I say that, that John's the evangelist that that covered this article, if you will. Have you ever wondered how a particular evangelist came to know the details of stories and conversations that they themselves did not witness? John wasn't there. He went into the city to buy food. Now, I don't know how that happens, and I don't know why John gives us this story and the others don't, but I'm satisfied with the idea that Jesus just reiterated the particulars of these things and assigned certain events to certain men to write. We could also say they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came on them and gave them everything they needed to know, and that may be the way it happens as well. I suggest that it's uh, cooperation of the two. In this case, as in the case with the visit by Nicodemus or the raising of Lazarus, it seems to me it may have been John's assignment to publish these things to the world. And Matthew and Mark, who were present in those days, were given other assignments, like the beheading of John and the voyage to the land of the Gadarenes, which John doesn't cover. And as for Luke, well, what about Luke? He wasn't even there in those days. But he was like Paul, one born out of due time. Remember Paul talked about his apostleship that way? I was one born out of due time. Neither man knew Jesus personally during his ministry years. I added that during his ministry years because Paul certainly met Jesus literally on the road. Of course, he was in the resurrected state. But each of these men had their own experience with the close disciples of Jesus. Luke was sort of an investigative journalist and compiled notes from those who were there in those days. And not to mention, as I said, they each had a personal calling of the Holy Spirit But think about this. Moses wasn't present at creation, so certainly that was given him by revelation of God directly. He wasn't in Eden. Now, the reason I I choose to talk about Moses here is we think of the first five books as the books of Moses, and Jesus seems to confirm that in his rhetoric, that Moses is the author or um, certainly the writer, compiler of the first five books. 
but he wasn't there at creation. He wasn't there in Eden. He wasn't a passenger on the ark, but the inspiration of God calls certain men to certain tasks, and Jesus himself noted this very thing of Paul when he said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul had a distinct assignment from the Lord. And so here John tells the tale of the conver- uh, conversation rather that Jesus had with the now famously unnamed woman at the well. All we know is that she was a Samaritan, she was a woman, she was thirsty, and she had a bunch of ex-husbands. So what do we learn about her? Well, just that. She's a Samaritan. And it's that fact, along with the fact that the Lord seemed to engineer this private meeting with a woman that's a most striking development in the gospel stories. He meets her at a significant place along the road from Judah to Galilee. When you're leaving Judah and you're going to Galilee, look at the last book of your Bible, the 67th book, the book of Maps, and you'll see that when you leave Judea, you pretty much have to go through Samaria unless you go a long way around to miss it, which some Jews would do, by the way. Um, But at this point in time, Jesus sought to go through the land of, um, I guess I should say, their enemies. And so he meets her at a significant place along the road from Judah to Galilee. It's called the Well of Jacob. Now, Bible stories take place in arid lands, as you know, and so it should not be surprising that significant meetings all throughout the Bible are at well stops like this one. These wells were sort of the, uh, the Howard Johnsons of the first century. I know you don't know what Howard Johnsons is, but they used to be the, the stops along the road where you would rest and get food and and get gas and use the bathroom and those kinds of things. Now I guess they're McDonald's. But in the old days, they were, and I know all the people my age know that there was um, Howard Johnson's, but, and they were very famous for that. So these well stops would be like that. There would be amenities there. You would stop. There would be conversations. People would be there with their animals and, and, um, and would be um, watering them. It shouldn't be surprising that there's a lot of significant meetings at well stops throughout scriptures. Matthew Henry reminds us of this very thing when he writes, this woman's meeting with Christ at the well may remind us of the story of Rebecca. Do you remember that? The story of Rachel and then Jethro's daughter who married Moses, right? And Matthew Henry writes, all who met with husbands, good husbands, no worse than Isaac, Jacob, and Moses when they came to wells for water. It was a social place. You could almost expect to see people there. It was interesting that the only ones we know that were there at that time were Jesus and this woman. Now, friends, the Lord may be thirsty, but he's not thirsty for a wife. I almost believe, as I read this, that neither is he thirsty for water. He turns it down several times. He is thirsty, however, for a conversion. A significant person here must be converted. To the faith. Friends, remember this, and I want you to use this, all right? Conversion usually begins with conversation. There's very rarely a conversion that happens without a conversation. We are people of the book. We are people of words. We are people of the gospel. And so the conversation ensues because that's the road, that's the, that's the path to conversion. And so back to our verse, we should note that the woman instantly recognizes Jesus as a Jew. Don't you ever find that interesting? Here they are, virtually in the same country. They meet at a well stop. They're both of the same race, if you will, in terms of 
skin color and that kind of thing. But she knows instantly that he's a Jew. Perhaps it was his clothing. Maybe the cut of his beard or the inflection in his speech. Remember they knew Peter was Galilean because he had a certain accent? Perhaps it was that Samaritans, the ancient enemies of the Jews, were always on the lookout for Jewish infiltrators into their land to pass through it, to purchase food in their cities, or to drink water from their wells. And so she asks the now famous question, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then we have John's editorial note which says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As we've seen from other of the gospel tales, the Lord is not averse to tearing down these social walls. Structures that are put up between people of diverse customs or diverse lineage. Remember the centurion? Remember he was Roman? He was a foreign authority. He was a man of power and distinction over the Jews. Yet the Lord responded to his request and commended his great faith. The Lord broke barriers of all sorts. And what of Nicodemus, the Pharisee? If the ancient world is concerned with political parties and religious antagonists and social elites, as indeed they were when the centurion, the Pharisee, and various others with whom he fraternized is proof of Christ's iconoclasm. He's breaking down these social walls and spreading the gospel where it was not natural to be spread, where it was not perhaps comfortable to be spread. Notice the Lord goes right into a religious discussion. When's the last time you did that when you met someone? Just went right into a religious discussion. From Matthew Henry, we read about these very things which say, Now it happened as Jesus sat at table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. He was breaking the social rules, you see, at times like that. He didn't mind sitting down with sinners and tax collectors. For that matter, with regard to prevailing Jewish contempt... For, the Samarit, for their Samaritan neighbors, Jesus, interestingly, enshrines his social policy in the very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And I hope you know how the parable goes. There's a man by the side of the road. He's injured. He's been robbed. He needs help. And a priest passes by and goes on the other side of the road. A Levite passes by and goes on the other side of the road. These are the ones that in Jewish thought should have been the charitable ones reaching out to a fallen human being. But Jesus decides in his parable that it would be a Samaritan. And so we give the man the name the Good Samaritan. Now most people that talk about the Good Samaritan today probably don't know that background, that the Samaritans among the Jews were not considered good. What's lost in the reference today is that the parable reveals God's impartiality with regard to salvation, because the Samaritans were famously not very good. Certainly not from an Israelite perspective, right? They were antagonistic and oppressive to the Jews. So much so that they were a secondary concern to Jesus in his early ministry. Remember when he gave this order to the twelve apostles, do not go into the way of the Gentile, do not enter a city of the Samaritans. He's breaking his own rule here. Matthew Henry described the situation this way, and it's interesting that this is back in the day when you could actually say things. He said the Samaritans, both in blood and in religion, were mongrel Jews. Imagine saying something like that today. Pastor, you just did. No, I quoted someone. But they were, that's exactly what they were. They were like the half-tribes of Israel. 
The Samaritans were indeed the usurpers in what was formerly the land of Israel. In fact, it goes as far back as 722 B.C., where we read from 2 Kings that they inhabited land given them by the Assyrian conquerors of Israel. And so we read from 2 Kings, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvium, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. So this was done by their usurpers. Friends, in that part of the world, people don't get over this kind of thing. They know their history, and they know what land they consider to be their own. And then it says, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So these foreigners, these Babylonians, these Assyrians were placed there, And given that land, after Israel was conquered and unable to take it back um, through military campaigns. And so they were always seen as usurpers, and indeed that's what they were. But in that same chapter we learn that the Lord punished the Samaritans in that land for serving false gods. Yet they persisted in their idolatry. It's a a very interesting passage of, of Scripture where we read, in uh, Second Kings, that they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So the Samaritans did not worship the Lord. They recognized the Lord. They recognized his power. They recognized that he even punished them for their idolatry, and yet persisted in idolatry. And those rituals included human sacrifice. We read this from verse 31 of that same chapter. They burned their children in fire to Adramalek and Amalek, the gods of Savarvium. So those were their gods, Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Savarvium, which is one of the areas where those people were imported from. So you see there's a real antagonism here. This isn't just... Uh, This isn't just some uh, friendly meeting with a foreigner. These are people with whom the Jews had much animosity against. It was very much like Jonah going into Nineveh. And they were of the Assyrian nation as well. However, these Samaritans coveted the relationship Israel had with their God through law and and prophets and the covenants. And so like modern-day Muslims, they usurped the role of the so-called chosen people. Now, why did I talk about Muslims? It's because at the inception of the Islamic religion, back in 600 AD, Muhammad went into a cave in Arabia and supposedly received revelation from his god, Allah, and wrote the book of the Quran. Now, one of the reasons that they wrote the Quran is they coveted the idea that the Jews and the Christians were so-called people of the book. They had a book that encoded their, the laws and the precepts that they all held in common. And the Arab peoples didn't have that at that time. They were very disparate. And Muhammad pulled them all together, you see. And he looked at what they had, they coveted it, and they copied it. And then they usurped the role of the chosen people. And they said that God's covenant did not go through Isaac, but went through Ishmael. And that's very similar to what's happening here with the Samaritans. And that's why I bring that up, friends. So they developed a uniquely Samaritan gospel tale of their own, you see. They made themselves the offspring of the patriarchs. 
And Samaria was the theater where significant Old Testament events took place. Friends, the very word Samaria means watchtower. These people saw themselves as the guardians and the stewards of the one true faith. And Jesus is going in there to blast this false belief out of the water. Mount Gerizim is said by them to be the mount where Abraham took Isaac for sacrifice. That, of course, is in Samaria. The Jews hold that it was Mount Zion, where the temple was eventually built. So they, the Samaritans built their own temple, the temple of Gerizim. That's the one the woman refers to in the passage. And by the time of this meeting, that temple had long been demolished by the Maccabees in the intertestamental period. The Maccabees were um, a, a Jewish dynasty, which actually opposed um, Rome and uh, the Seleucid dynasty that was ruling the area at the time. So as early as 111 BC, that rival temple in Samaria was destroyed by the Maccabees. Yet the mountain to this day is still used as a holy site to the descendants of the Samaritans, and the date of the temple coming down is a holiday in Israel. It's the 21st of Kislev. So that's some of the background of why this is such a distinctive tale, and why when the apostles come back, and what we'll read next week in the ensuing uh, passage is that they were very surprised that he talked not only to a woman but a woman of Samaria. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now the living water of which the Savior speaks is the living word of God which alone has the power to save her soul. That's why I say conversion begins with conversation. James said it very succinctly this way, put away all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. No soul is saved without which the word has been implanted in their hearts. Jesus took no time getting to the crux of the matter. We concern ourselves with so many ancillary concerns on our way to evangelism, but the Savior gets right to the point here. Like most fallen and sinful creatures, however, the woman thinks carnally when she should have been thinking spiritually. You notice how a lot of Jesus' conversations, he has to sort of draw us out of our carnal thinking and get us to see something um, of more of a sublime nature. He talks about water. She can't get over the fact that he's talking about water, when, of course, he's already ascended to another plane of understanding. So the Savior gets right to the point. She's still thinking carnally, and I'm reminded of so many other times when this happened. Remember Nicodemus, when the Lord said, a man must be born again to see the kingdom of God, and the Pharisee wondered at the biological difficulty of that statement? And he said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? I have to say that is the, if there ever was a stupid question, that's the quintessential one. Um, With all due respect to the Pharisee, if ever there was a foolish question, it had to be that one. And I'm quite ready to say the same of the response of the woman at the well. The Lord is clearly a different sort of person. I should think that the philosophical implication of his conversation would be evident. He's talking about something higher and greater than water. 
And he's not afraid of the social custom that is all about them that he's breaking at the time. But maybe the question comes from the discomfort that most people feel when asked to think beyond the obvious and the immediate. Did you ever talk to someone about your religion or have it just come up in conversation? In my case, it may come up that I am a minister, a Baptist minister, and I preach the gospel on Sunday mornings, and people can suddenly become uncomfortable wondering where that conversation's going to go, and they have um, really nothing to say about, about their, their own religious convictions. And they say things like, oh, um, you're a minister. Um, my sister's cousin's husband is a minister. You know, but it's so, you sort of get this series of non sequiturs. That's kind of what we're seeing here. Perhaps she thought, we're at a well. Maybe it was just a logical um, way for her to go. We're at a well. The concern of the moment is thirst. Not tomorrow's thirst. Today's thirst. Why does this itinerant Jew speak of everlasting life in the very moment that his life's physical needs are so imminent? He's thirsty now. Maybe she was thinking, it's my throat that is parched, not my soul. And when my thirst is assuaged, my soul will be assuaged with it. Isn't that how most of us think? Aren't our immediate physical needs the most important things to us in the moment? If you want to discuss the health of the soul, the questions of eternal life, then do it in a church, they might say to you. We're at a well, she may have thought. And the purpose of our being here is thirst. And so these very things are revealed in her answer to the Lord's proclamation. In verse 11, the woman says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She's still thinking logically, carnally. He's talking about some kind of water. How is he going to draw the water out of the well? Where do you get this living water? Though the question still reveals a matter-of-fact approach to this unusual meeting between a woman of Samaria and a man of Israel. It seems to me she's interested in keeping the conversation going. She's at least entertaining the conversation. She's allowing herself to be drawn in. And then it is she who introduces the religious element. It's she who challenges the level of his religious devotion. Verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Boy, what a lead-in for Jesus, huh? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? I have a couple of things I want to say about this verse. I'm reminded here of the words of Jesus when he said this, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repent because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And then he said, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Indeed, friends, a greater than Jacob was there. But her words, are they have this ethnic challenge tone to it. It's almost as if she's saying, you're just a Jew and you're in the wrong place, and you worship on the wrong mountain, and you do all these wrong things. It seems to me she's subtly challenging him. Her words reflect the ancient covetousness of a whole nation of people whose life's wish is to be connected with the prophets and the patriarchs of Israel, and they're really not connected. 
And so her words intend to ask, shouldn't the Jews be even more blessed, even more impressed with the importance and the antiquity of this particular well? I am a Samaritan. I am a mere woman. I'm honoring the privilege of drinking from the well that Jacob himself drank from. Keep in mind, friends, Jacob is Israel. Now, I don't question that her challenge is in keeping with the whole religious thrust of the Samaritan people. She's saying, in a sense, I'm more Jewish than you are. At least in my devotion, I honor this gift of the great patriarch of the covenant of God because, and you put yourself over him and over the sons of Israel. Now, at this point in the narrative, I'll ask you to invest with me in a little mischief, if you will. It's a moment like this, like this from the Gospel of John in particular, where I'm given to question the veracity of some of the propositions that were made. I wonder, listen, John says this is the well of Jacob, but that could just be the name of the well. Is this really Jacob's well? Matthew Henry questions it as well. He said, we find no mention of this well in the Old Testament, but the tradition was that it was Jacob's well. Friends, so much of religion is based on tradition, empty man-made tradition, and nothing else. Now, we know that Jacob settled in the area around Sychar and gave it to Joseph. John says so. In verse 6, he said, now Jacob's well was there. Yet like several points of reference from this gospel, I have questions regarding the actual references and the language the apostle uses with regard to them. We should remember that Jacob, if he personally ordered the digging of this particular well, he did so a millennium and a half before this conversation. That's 1,500 years or so before this conversation, and the well is still running and serving people and livestock. If you go by Israel today, there's a site in Bethlehem declared to be the original manger. I have my doubts, let's just say. I rather doubt if that claim could stand an intense historical investigation. I think not. I would also say to you that in medieval times, there were many such claims made concerning the patriarchs and the apostles. You remember we talk about this sometimes and we poke fun at it. In fact, we ridicule it at the Reformation Fair, there was a skull on display that was said to be the head of John the Baptist. And you could actually receive points with God for contemplating the skull. It was revered, as were some wooden splinters that were said to be the remains of the so-called true cross of Christ, right? Along with original spikes that nailed him. There were chicken bones from the cock that crowed when Peter denied Christ, There was a pillar of salt said to be Lot's wife and a lock of hair from Jesus. And friends, there's a tunic with a barely visible impression of the face of a bearded man. And people revere it and worship these things. And friends, the canopy in the Vatican sanctuary is said to be the grave marker of Peter the Apostles, which I have to tell you this morning is extremely unlikely. I asked Pastor Ken about that one time. I said, is Peter really buried under that canopy? And he said, of course not. (laughs) He seemed to know. But I wonder at John's intent. Did an angel really come and stir the water at the pool of Bethesda? And were any really healed by being first to plunge in after the water stirred? And if they did and they were not healed, was it explained away by arguments as to who really jumped in first? Or was the stirring from an angel or from a passing breeze? How would you know? None of that really mattered because the real hero, healer was there and healed the man who really needed 
to be healed and yearned after the Messiah. All this to say, friends, is that it's not remarkable that a Samaritan wants to focus on the well and the Jew wants to focus on the gospel. Her whole ethnic identity is bound up in the historical importance of a well and the identity of its founder, which they've claimed for centuries now to be Jacob. And the Lord's identity is bound up in being the wellspring of eternal life and the identity of he and his father. To her, the place is a shrine, friends. To Jesus, the place is a pulpit. It's a place to proclaim. Have you ever had a religious conversation with someone who clearly does not know the Lord or the way of salvation, but he's intent upon speaking about his personal religious experiences or claims of some sort of higher spirituality? We could spend a lot of time arguing about who's more religious than whom or what things constitute real spiritual understanding. But the Lord does not go this way. He does not smash the claim that every Samaritan clings to that they are the real offspring of Jacob, or that their temple is the actual site of significant biblical events. For the gospel is a break from all of this formality. It doesn't matter what temple you worship at. That's not the issue. It doesn't matter which well you drink from. It matters which water you drink. And so the gospel is free from this defensive posture of having to be explained before it's proclaimed. It's more of proclamation. It's less of a defense. And so the Lord does not entertain for a moment the physical difficulty of drawing water without a vessel. He doesn't answer the question or the true connection of historical sites to historical persons. He doesn't take that on. Rather, he stays on message, and the message is eternal life. And so he says, Jesus answered and said to her, we read, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, friends. And so the Lord proclaims the message, and in doing so, proclaims himself. You can go on drinking from Jacob's well, or you can take a draft from the hand of the Savior. So the woman says to him, sir, give me this water. Now I would almost think she's come around, but then she adds this, that I may not thirst or come here to draw. In other words, this new water is some kind of modern convenience. It keeps us from going out with buckets to the well. She's finally impressed with her new acquaintance, yet she seems still to be stuck on the physical. It's as if the gospel is the latest time saver that keeps us from going to the faucet to drink. She's not there, but she's on the way. So he asks famously of her husband. He's probing her life now, and he reveals a crucial point of veiled sin in her life. She would claim a connection with Jacob through the well, yet her whole life is lived in resistance to the moral law of Jacob. She's a serial adulterer, friends. Having had five husbands, she is presently a fornicator living with a man out of wedlock. And Jesus gets her to confess this before him. Remember what Paul wrote of such things. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And there's been a pastor put in prison in Canada for preaching that verse as well. And so the Lord again hits on the real issues. And it's usually the real issues in a person's life that turn them back to the... to the incidentals of religion 
and away from the necessities of repentance. Friends, when you're in intense, gross sin, as this woman was, you'd much rather talk about the spirituality of drinking from that well than the spirituality of pleasing God by repenting of your obvious sins. So once again, she reverts to ancillary concerns and non-sequiturs. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She retreats back to what she's always believed is the Samaritan stronghold to true devotion. But the Lord isn't having it. And so with this thunderbolt, he converts her. We read, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Friends, it's not who you are. It's not where you live. It's not the places of human importance that assuages the thirst that all dry and lifeless souls long for. The water of life is the gospel. The vessel we drink from is faith. And the well is Christ himself. He is a deep well of life and knowledge. And while you're enjoying your draft, if you will, put away your sin of fornication. And as long as you want to be a proclaimer of truth, put away your Samaritan fables, for salvation is of the Jews. And as long as you want to speak of devotion to God, come to know the one true God. And as long as you speak of worship, forget about the place of worship and focus on the only worthy object of true worship, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A Father, in Jesus' name, let us be those who worship in spirit and truth. Let us be those who worship what we know and who we know. O Father, reveal to us the true identity of Jesus Christ and those who have today not come to know Him in this way. We pray that in the same way this Samaritan woman was awakened to the reality of salvation through Christ, that you too will be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.